you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 13. The thing that stirred my heart and moved my mind to bring a message on Romans 13 is the fact that uh, we are thinking about our country today because it is Memorial Day, or tomorrow, to be accurate, is Memorial Day, but this is Memorial Day weekend. And because we are thinking about things with respect to our freedom, our government, and, and those kinds of things, it seemed appropriate to me, at least, to bring a message about Christian citizen. And so that's what I want to do this morning in the first 14 verses of the book of Romans. Pray with me, please, before we look into the Word of God. Father, we have opened before us your inerrant Word. Thank you for it. The Spirit of God is the author of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is the infallible teacher of the Word of God. And we pray that you would give to us insight this morning into your Word. Give to us, we pray, submissive hearts and an openness to be doers of the Word of God and not just hearers. Not as those the Scripture speaks of uh, who look in a mirror and turn and walk away, do nothing about what they've seen. But help us, we pray, O oh Lord, to be doers. of the, Help us to wake up tomorrow and every day this week and, and be reminded, I want to be. It is incumbent upon me this day to be a doer of God's Word. We pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. <coughs> a careful reader of the book of Romans will doubtless notice a tension between the opening words of chapter 13 of the book of Romans and the closing words of that same chapter. Would you notice with me, please? He says in verse 1, Let every person be subject to the government and governing authorities. But he ends chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 13 with verse 12, uh, that, that's beginning the ending of this chapter. But he says in verse 12, the night is almost gone. And in terms of what the apostle is talking about there, he's talking about the age in which we live. The night is almost gone. The age in which we live is almost gone. It's far spent. Do you see the tension? If the present age is just about over, and Paul says that it is, not only here but in other places as well, then why be so concerned about being subject to the government? And that tension is increased just a bit if we recall that the Apostle Paul said in chapter 12 of Romans, verse 2, be not conformed to this world. Is not paying our taxes, is not being submissive to the government, is that not, at least in some degree, some measure conforming to the world in which we live? So the question is, if we are not to be conformed to the world, should we pay our city and County taxes? Should we pay our income taxes, the IRS? Should we vote? In fact, didn't Paul in Philippians say, for our citizenship is in heaven? So do you see something of the tension that some 
gather and, and trying to put these two things, these two or three things together. How do these things work? Do they fit together? Well, I want to suggest to you, I, I believe these things do fit together in a very reasonable, cogent fashion. They are in harmony if we remember that the Christian has several spheres of life in which he lives and exists and in which he has responsibilities. In the first place, there is that personal sphere. Um, this sphere uh, is uh, encompassed by the Lord and the believer only. There are two people, the Lord and the believer, in this personal sphere. And in this sphere, the child of God is to live in accord with the will of God as, as it is expressed in the Word of God. And basically, it is a matter of our submissiveness to the Lord in view of the fact that one day we are going to have to stand before the Lord. Sometimes pulpits become fearful of eschatology, future things. And so little is said about it. Do you know that one day every child of God will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? New Testament makes that very plain. We don't hear much about that anymore. And I suppose there are a lot of reasons for it. But in this first sphere of our existence, the Lord and the individual believer, there's no one else in that sphere, not a wife, not a husband, not a parent, not a child, not a grandparent, no one. We stand in that sphere with the Lord and the individual. There is a second sphere that we are a part of, and that is the family. And here, the Christian is responsible for obedience to the things revealed in the Word of God uh, and the, what the Scriptures have to say about the family. Summed up in just a few simple words, husbands, love your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Well, this is right. Some time ago, I read a statement by the Duke of Windsor that uh, just stuck with me. The Duke of Windsor said on one occasion, the most amazing thing about America is the way parents obey their children. <laughs> now you laugh, but you know there's a whole lot of truth to that, don't you? There's a whole lot of truth to that. Well, the Duke of Windsor wasn't all bad. Uh, but it's supposed to be the other way. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. And this is part of that second sphere, the part of the family sphere that uh, we need to take note of and that we live in. The third sphere is the church. And here, once again, the Christian's duty is expressed in Scripture, and that is to be submissive to those in authority over them, uh, to imitate their faith. And the key chapter here is uh, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 7, verse 17, verse 24. And a lot of folks in the church that uh, blanch a little bit about that, talk about uh, being submissive to the elders. Uh, nah, I don't know about that. Well, read Hebrews 13, 7, 17, and 24. The fourth sphere that we live in and exist in and have responsibilities in is the state. And that's what Romans 13 is all about. We have certain responsibilities, and Paul writes about them <clears throat> Excuse me. in chapter 13 and in 
elsewhere, but chapter 13, I believe, is the key. So we have different areas of responsibility, and this morning I want to consider public obligations to the state. There's some things that we owe to the state, to the state, and then there are some private obligations within the state. So public obligations to the state, private obligations within the state, and then there are some personal obligations based on future events personal obligations um, based on events to come. First of all, public obligations to the state. Paul, all of this is fine, uh, but how do we get along with Rome? How do we get along with the state? How do we get along with government? And again, I believe that's what this chapter is all about. And Paul explains our obligations. Would you notice, first of all, 13.1, that every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Interesting thing to me is Paul didn't say let every Christian. It's broader than that. Let every person, let every soul, I think the old King James says, be subject to higher authorities, be subject to the state. Chapter 12, Paul had spoken about obligations because we're part of the body of Christ. In chapter 13, he speaks about obligations because we are part of the state. And therefore, he says, let every person be subject. You know, uh, biblical ignorance in America is on on the rise. There are folks today who say, I am not subject to what the Bible says. There are folks who take it further and say, uh, well, not further, but who also take it and say, I'm not responsible to the state. Let every what? Person. And that word that follows, the word subjection, same word as submission. Paul uses it a number of times throughout the New Testament. Well, it seems to me a reasonable question. And, and by the way, when you study the Bible, ask questions and then look for answers. Often they are found in the scriptures. Paul, why are we to be subject to the state? And the answer is given in the text in verses 2 through 6. He gives us answers. Notice, first of all, because higher powers have been ordained and established by God. Beginning of... Uh, in the middle of verse 1, for. You see that word for? Well, Paul before that had said, be in subject, be in submission to the government. Why? For. There's where the reasons began. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Government, whether we like it all the time or don't like it any time, uh, government is established by God. Now, you may say, well, that administration or some administration or whatever you want to say. But what we might say doesn't change what the Scriptures teach. Let every soul be subject. Why? Because they are ordained of God. But, wait a minute. What if the government's corrupt? What if the government is corrupt? Let me put the question another way. Suppose as a parent, you are not perfect. Do we have any like that here this morning? No show of hands. <laughs> Do we have any parents that are imperfect? 
suppose parents are unfaithful to the majority of their duties as parents, as prescribed in Scripture. Suppose they are just unfaithful to those, generally unfaithful. Does that, does their violation make it okay for children not to follow the biblical injunction of be obedient to your parents? Because a parent is bad and doesn't fulfill all of his God-given responsibilities or her God-given responsibilities, make it okay for children to say, have nothing to do with that. Answer, no. No. And the same thing is true of government. Same thing is true of government. A corrupt government, an unfaithful, like an unfaithful parent, still is to receive our submission. Have you ever thought about who the rulers were in Paul's day? The time that he said this. Who were some of the rulers then? Well, that's interesting. I, I, I looked. I'm not that much of a history buff just to have it right sitting on uh, the tip of my tongue. Uh, does the name Caligula ring a bell with anybody? He was a mental deficient, historians tell us. Uh, he demanded to be worshipped as God. He emptied the treasury, and he confiscated private property. Caligula. Uh, what about Nero? That ring a bell? He murdered his mother, and when he'd done that, he murdered his wife. What kind of government was that? Those were in Paul's day. And yet Paul wrote, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Someone has said, and I had to think about it a while before I could digest it, but someone made the comment, even bad government is better than no government at all. And I, I don't mind telling you, I, I had to think about that one a little while. But I came to the conclusion pretty soon that that was the correct statement. Even bad government is better than no government at all. What would it be like in this world? Not just in Fuqua Arena, but what would it be like worldwide if there was no government whatsoever? None. Remember the Old Testament? Every man did right, did that which was right in his own eyes. Is that the kind of world we want to live in? Basically, the Bible teaches, even though parents will fail, even though church leaders will fail, their tasks are God-given. They are of divine origin. And we must always keep that in mind. And if those entities fail, we are not released in any way, shape, or form. We are not released from our responsibility. That responsibility abides. It's God-given. Now back to the question about government. Why be in submission to the government? Well, first of all, because God established it. <clears throat> but there's a second reason. And Paul talks about that in verses 3 through 6. Because the powers approve that which is good and punish that which is evil. And that's generally true. Listen to the Apostle Paul, verse 3. For the rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority, he questions? Do what is good. 
and you will have praise from the same. He goes on, verse 4, For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. I can't help read these, these verses and, and, and think of what to me is a terrific illustration. It may not be to you, but it is to me. Suppose you're driving down the highway, and the speed limit sign says 55. And you're doing 54 or 55, and you see a highway patrolman sitting parked off the road a little bit, and you know he's got a, a, a gun that's telling him how fast you're going. Does that worry you? Speed limit's 55, you're doing 54, 55. Are you bothered by that? Nah, you don't care. Well, let's suppose that you're in a big hurry, and you think that you need to have the right-of-way over everybody else. And you need to go 70 miles an hour to get where you need to be at the appointed time. And so you're tooling down the road at 70 miles an hour. And you see a highway patrolman sitting there. Are you afraid? You break out in a cold sweat. And you know if his radar gun's working, you're in trouble. You fear. Lawbreakers fear. If we're not doing anything against the law, Paul says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Notice how far he carries this. Back up to verse 4 once again. For it is a ministry. He's talking about the government. It is a ministry for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. Now, notice this phrase. For it does not bear the sword in vain. It doesn't carry the sword for nothing. Now, a question here. What was the purpose of the sword in the first century? To take life. Wrapped up in the middle of verse 4 in this statement is justification for capital punishment. Now, we are living in a society that's getting away from it. And may I just simply say, society's wrong. Penologists tell us it's no longer a deterrent. May I say to you, that isn't true. Have you ever seen... This is a silly statement, but I'm, I'm going to make it anyway. Have you ever seen... Anyone upon whom capital punishment has been carried out uh, going on, doing what they want to do? Uh-uh. The Bible teaches capital punishment. Now, uh, Romans 13 is not the primary passage, but it is an important passage in this matter. Scriptures teach capital punishment is biblical. It is a deterrent. And then Paul goes on and concludes in verse 7. He says, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom customs do, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Even if the ship of state begins to sink, the Christian is to stay at his post in obedience to the will of God as expressed in the New Testament, as expressed in God's Word. The general principle is we as Christians are subject to the authority of the state. You remember the incident in the life of the Lord Jesus? 
the chief priests and the Pharisees sought to entrap him. And so they asked Jesus the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And they thought they had, with that question, they thought they had the Lord on the the horns of a dilemma. If he said, nope, uh, they don't have to do that, then he would be considered either a traitor to Israel or to Caesar. How would the Lord respond to that? Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. The Pharisees said, you've got to be one or the other. You've got to be loyal to Israel. Or said to Jesus, you've got to be loyal to Israel. If you say pay taxes to, to Rome, then you're a traitor to Israel. But Jesus said, it's not either one or the other. It's both and. Render, therefore, unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the things, and to unto God the things that are God's. Now, The questions in some of your minds now, if you're thinking, are there ever exceptions to being subject to the government? Suppose the government not only persecutes Christians, but forbids the preaching of the gospel. What then? In matters where there is a clear violation of the principles of the Word of God, I say to you, we are to resist. The Bible makes it clear we are to obey God rather than men. That's the statement of Scripture. We obey God rather than men. And there are numerous illustrations of that. I will not go into them right now. Those are public obligations to the state. For just a moment or two, look with me at some public obligations. Excuse me. Those were, yeah, public obligations to the state. There are some public obligations within the state. Verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. First of all, there's a negative statement here. Owe no man no thing except to love. Now, what does that mean? Owe no man no thing. Are we never under any thinkable circumstances to borrow money. There's a religious group that believes, takes it just that way. You can never borrow money. Well, I'm just raising the question. Are we never under any circumstances to borrow money? Let me ask you this. What about the mortgage on your home? What about the use of credit cards? Paul says, owe nothing to anyone. What does he mean? Well, again, some take it as meaning that no matter what the reason, you are never to borrow money. But in keeping with the analogy of Scripture, I do not believe that it means we are never to incur any financial obligations. And there are some passages which have to be considered here. 
um, in Matthew 5, verse 42, and in Luke 6, verse 35, as well as other passages in the Bible, seem to me very clear to indicate that some kind of lending is permissible. So what does Romans 13, 8 mean? It is, at the very least, a warning against borrowing loosely, against contracting debts that we aren't pretty certain that we are going to be able to repay. May I say to you, there are a few things that bring greater reproach upon the Christian profession than an accumulation of debts and a refusal to pay them. You know, there used to be, I don't know why they still do it or not, there used to be a, a credit card <clears throat> that said, don't leave home without it. Remember that? I don't think they use it much anymore, but you remember it. Don't leave home without it. I think if the Apostle Paul were here, his advice would be, don't leave home with it. Then there's a positive side in verses 8 through 10, and we've already read those. Uh, the key to getting along with the community, the key to getting along with the state, is being submissive to the powers that be. That's the key to getting along with the state. The key to getting along with the church is to love one another. That's the key to getting along with the church. Love one another. And I think that's what he says in verses 8, 9, and 10. And then there are some personal obligations that have future incentives for us. One of the greatest incentives for Christian obedience is 1311. Read it with me. Or just notice it with me. You follow along. And this do. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I believe one of the greatest incentives for Christian living is the return of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. If we do not believe that, if you are within the sound of my voice and you do not believe that Jesus is coming again, then let me just make a suggestion to you. Why don't you just pack your Bible away in a box and, and, and put it in a closet and never open it again? Exhortation after exhortation, after verse, after verse, after verse, time after time. The Bible says Jesus is coming again. I hope all of us are just simple enough to believe what the Bible says. Nothing more than, nothing less than, and nothing other than. Just believe what the Bible says. Paul said the hour for you to awaken is now. It's the time Look at the middle of that verse, would you please? Verse 11. Awaken from sleep. I'm not personally acquainted with him, but I know a, a Bible teacher who makes his living Bible conferences. And he said he went to one church and conducted a meeting. And because of the behavior and the comments of the people, they weren't ugly to him. But he said because of the the uh, comments, uh, the, the way people conducted themselves in, in and around the church house and the response to the Word of God, he said he had changed the name of that particular church. 
It had been a Baptist church, but he changed the name of it to St. John's of the Anesthesia. <laughs> he said, those people were asleep. They had no idea what's going on. Paul says, it's high time to wake up. Take the pajamas off. Wake up. You know, it seems to me we are living in a day when churches are no longer excited about God's truth. They're embalmed by it. But there's no excitement about it. Wonderful, look at that promise there. Oh, I don't care. You know, you know what a somnambulist is. That's a 25-cent word, isn't it? Webster defines that as a sleep-like state in which there is walking or other acts that are performed. Walking and talking, but asleep. Paul says, wake up. Wake up. There's work to be done. And may I say to you, thank God for the, the uh, foresight, the forethought of the people at Wake Chapel Church to go ahead and do this addition over here. Now it's time to pray and to see that we fill that place up, those 14, 15 classrooms, however many there are, we fill them up with young people. Now's the time. Wake up. It's not a time to sit back and relax and say, well, we got that done. Wake up. Take the pajamas off. Let's get to work. Dr. McGee writes about this closing section. He said, in this closing section, he talked about Romans, an alarm clock goes off to awaken believers who have gone to sleep in this world and have forgotten their responsibilities. You know what he says? Look at it, folks. Awaken from sleep. The first incentive Paul gives us is the coming of the Lord. And then he speaks about some conduct that is expected. He says in verse 12, The night's almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us lay aside, therefore, the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. Those deeds he's referring to are the deeds that, were, that marked our lives before we came to faith in Christ. Lay aside those. Put on the armor of light. I think it's interesting that the apostle used this expression, the armor, here. Paul spent a whole lot of time with Roman soldiers. He saw their armor. And that's what he had in mind here. After being on duty all day, the Roman soldier would lay aside the armor and carouse at night. And then in the morning, he would put on his armor again. Paul observed that time and time again. And now he exhorts Christian people, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Lay aside those things that marked your former lifestyle and put on the armor of light. Paul concludes in verse 14. He says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We must be in Christ before we can put on Christ. Are we in Christ? Are you in Christ this morning? Have you trusted Jesus as your personal Savior? 
What is this chapter all about? Well, Paul is saying that we are to be in submission to the governments of this world. And that submission is to be carried out against a background of hope. And that hope is the return of the Lord. Wake up, child of God. And if you haven't yet come to faith in Christ, there's no better day than today. Why don't you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior right where you sit? He loves you and he died for you. He shed his blood for you. You heard me say it so often. You don't know for a certainty. I know what it says about husbands and wives. And, but you do not know for a certainty anyone who would die for you. And Jesus already has. He loves you. But I have sinned. He forgives. And he cleanses. Come to Jesus. Trust him. Pray with me. Father, there's some wonderful lessons in Romans 13. May the Spirit of God seal these to our hearts and give to us a godly obedience to your precious word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you would take your hymnal, please, and turn with me to number 349. 349. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. 349. If you have a question about where you are in your walk of faith or you have not yet come to Christ and you have a question, I'll meet you here at the front. If God is speaking to your heart, do business with him. I promise you, you'll never regret what you do with Jesus. Stand with me, please. Thank you for being in God's house to worship this morning. I don't know who it is, but I believe that there's somebody in this room this morning that needs from you, not from somebody sitting beside of you, somebody in this room this morning needs a word of encouragement from you. Don't hurry out. Speak to one another. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as I say, I don't know who it is, but somebody in this room needs to hear from you. Just, I'm praying for you. Do that before you leave this morning. And leave rejoicing. How can we rejoice, Pastor, with all the mess that's going on in our world? That's not an unreasonable question. My answer is, he's coming. Amen. He's coming. I remember, if I can take another minute and tell you a story. I remember uh, taking Hebrew in seminary three days a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Well, I've never cared for a whole lot of homework, and especially on Friday night. Any, any of you school teachers... Uh, don't give homework on Friday. Come on. Get over it. Half your kids ain't going to do it anyway. So, <laughs> But I remember having to, to labor. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is called Kittle's text. 
I remember a lot of Friday nights eating dinner and sitting there for the next four or five hours laboring over translating Hebrew to English or English back to Hebrew. I never, I can, this is my sin, okay? I never prayed more for the Lord to come uh, <laughs> than I did on Friday nights. And that failing, and my wife will tell you this, Dr. Bruce Walkie was uh, my professor, a tremendous Hebrew scholar. Uh, but I got so far down with stuff on Saturday night, I actually prayed, Lord, give him four flat tires in the morning <laughs> so he can't come. <laughs> Dear people, listen to me. Jesus is coming back. Rejoice. Be glad. You've been in the house of God today. Been with Jesus. Young man, welcome. He knows who he is. Alan, come pray for us, would you please? God bless you, dear people. God bless you. Heavenly Father, we come to you today as the, uh, and worship you for this day. Is, is the, you're the, we know that you're the God of all and, um, and worthy of praise. And uh, we're going to worship you forever, Father. And uh, we pray for much wisdom so that we can go out and tell others about our King Jesus. Help us, Lord, this day that, um, that all those Sunday school rooms that Walt Ross was talking about are filled. And help us, Lord, to go about our days telling about our King Jesus that, and bringing children into this, uh, into this church <clears throat> that they will be filled. And um, we will all glory together worshiping your holy name in heaven one day. Be with us and guide us. Help us, Lord, to praise you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.